Well, if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4, finishing up the chapter by looking at verses 32 through 37. You can find it on page 912 there in the Pew Bibles. Friends, we're gathered here today because Christ has paid the penalty that our sin deserves. He has bore God's wrath for us. Through his blood, we have the forgiveness of all of our trespasses. We have been redeemed from the slavery of sin that once engrossed us and encapsulated us and weighed us down. Through his death, we have now been reconciled to God. Because he died, death will not defeat us. Because he lives, we too might live with him forever in glory. We're here to praise God for what he has done for us in Jesus. And I hope and I pray that it captures our hearts and that it's ever on our tongues. I pray that it would motivate us towards song and towards proclamation to find our hope and our joy and our satisfaction and life and blessing and gladness within our hearts because of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And we will spend our lives, we will spend eternity going deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into the love that God has shown for us in Jesus Christ our Lord. We can never exhaust what Christ has done for us in the gospel. It's worthy of our worship. One of the things that I've begun to notice over time is that sometimes we can have a very imbalanced view of the gospel. That we can get so focused in on what Christ does for us that we don't recognize what the gospel is meant to do in us and through us. That as this gift is applied to us. Our lives are changed forever so that we now live differently, not as individuals, but together. As God is transforming us as his people, we are commending, we are proclaiming, we are living out the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not just what he does for us, but what he does in us that spills over to what he does through us. He gives us new lives, but we are also given new loves and new longings and new desires that transforms how we live together as a body, or at least it should. It's what it's meant to do. And that's what we're going to see happening in our text this morning. The gospel and what it does for, in, and through us is meant to be displayed in our life together as a church, as a body. The gospel unites. And so, things like disunity, bitterness, hostility, anger, or lack of commitment in the church then becomes a gospel issue. The gospel sacrifices And so selfishness, indifference, and greed are gospel issues. The gospel loves. And so hatred, animosity, pride are gospel issues. You see, our lives together in the church 
makes the gospel visible. A gospel that is more than just what God does for us, but what he does in and through us. You know, one of the ways that we see the gospel most clearly being displayed in our lives is in generosity, in our lavish kindness towards others. God has lavished his grace upon us. God has been so generous to us and so growing in the grace of this generous gospel that we receive results in growth in generosity. And that's what we're going to see happening in this passage. However idealistic you may think that the early church that we read about here in the book of Acts is, we're going to see that grace grace was upon them all. And that great grace did a work in them so that the fruit of that great grace, how that began to work and overflow in them was generosity. That's what a generous gospel does in and through us. The generous gospel produces generous people. Generous gospel produces generous people. And so let's turn our hearts now to the passage, Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And what we're going to see happening in this church from this text is that the generous gospel produces generous people. Now when I say that word generous, what do you automatically think of? Think of money, right? That's usually all that we think about. It's just money. How can we be generous with money? Well, if we don't have money, therefore we don't need to be generous. But this passage is really going to push back against our concepts of generosity. It's going to widen it. It's going to broaden it out. We have to think about more than just money if we're going to understand generosity rightly. You see, their generosity was not just displayed in the fact that people who had stuff sold it and gave it to distribute to the needs of others, but we see generosity displayed in their profound unity, in their powerful testimony, and in their praiseworthy care. And that has significant implications on each and every one of us, no matter how young or old you are, no matter how much money or how little money you have. Because no matter who you are in Christ, you have been richly blessed. And you have been blessed with a wealth in Christ so that you can bless others. And so first, we see gospel growth in generosity being displayed in their profound unity. 
Now, as we've been working through the book of Acts, you probably have begun to notice that Luke likes transitions. He likes to throw in these summary statements, just like he did back in chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, as a way to sort of tie up things, to conclude things before he moves on to what comes next. And so even though Luke is writing, Luke is a good preacher here. We can learn a thing or two from him. He transitions us. He, he wraps up what we've just dealt with, and then he gives us a picture of how that is affected, how's that come to bear in the life of the church before he moves on to what comes next. Okay, and so he gives us this, this, this concluding snapshot of what this material, what is preceded, has, has just done. And so far, what we just looked at back in chapter 3 is that the power of the Holy Spirit had come upon the apostles as they proclaimed the gospel boldly to the very council that had condemned their Lord Jesus to death. They were bold because of who Jesus is, because of what Jesus had done. They were bold because Jesus was with them in power. And they saw him working through them. They were bold because Jesus had authority over all. They were bold because they knew that Jesus was the one and only way of salvation. And even as we saw the way they prayed last time in verses 23 through 31, they prayed to our sovereign God who has a plan for all things, trusting completely in his goodness because God is not small, God is not scared, God is not surprised. And it made them steadfast. And so now, before he moves on to what comes next, and what comes next is that Satan is about to commit a counterattack. Right? We're going to see what Satan kind of does to get us off course. And he's going to focus on, on subversion, persecution, and distraction. And so Luke wants to give us a snapshot of where we are before we move ahead. And what we see here in this snapshot, I mean, if we're completely honest, sounds a little too good to be true, doesn't it? I mean, anybody kind of look at that and say, yeah, yeah right? Verse 32 says that the full number, the multitude of those who believed, which at this point is at least 5,000 men, according to chapter 4, verse 4, all gathered together in one place in the city of Jerusalem, and that they were of one heart and soul. That is profound unity. I mean, when was the last time you felt as though you were of one heart and soul with someone? Your kindred spirits or bosom friends, as Anne likes to say in Anna Green Gables. Our kids have been listening to that, right? That you just felt like this one heart, one soul, so connected to them. A spouse, a friend, your kids, let alone the church, or even a church of thousands like this one here. When was the last time? I'm guessing that you'd say, well, that's pretty infrequent. I don't often feel like I'm of one heart and soul. And what was it that made you feel that way? Like when you actually were experiencing one heart and one soul, what was it, what were you doing that made you feel that way and how long did it last? A day, a night, a week? Is that the way you feel about the church? 
Sometimes. You know, I ask these questions because they color the way that we look at this passage. We read that these thousands of believers in Jerusalem were of one heart and one soul through the lens of our own experiences where we don't live that way. And so in reading this passage with our experience-colored glasses, we do one of three things. Either we ignore it, right? We, we kind of read one heart, one soul. Well, I'm just going to pretend I didn't read that and kind of move on to what comes next. Or we water it down to uh, what it means to be of one heart and soul to the lowest possible common denominator, right? Like, well, you know, they, they profess to believe in Jesus, and I believe in Jesus, so we're, we're of one heart and soul because we all say that we believe in Jesus. Yay. Or we just dismiss it. So that can't, that can't be. Luke, Luke's just being hyperbolic here. That, that can't really happen. They weren't really of one heart and soul. They didn't really share the same longings, the same ambitions, the same goals, the same pursuits, the same purpose. They weren't experiencing that kind of nearness, that that kind of unity. I mean, I don't even feel that way with my spouse most of the time. And so this is just Luke exaggerating here. That kind of unity is not possible. Friends, let me just tell you that all three of those responses are rooted in unbelief. Either to ignore, to minimize, or to dismiss is rooted in the fact that we don't believe that that profound unity is possible in the gospel. We don't believe that the gospel can unite hearts and souls to that level. That thousands of people could be so generous with their ambitions and their attitudes that they willingly lay down their longings, their own hopes and dreams, their own wants, their own opinions, their own prideful thoughts, their own individual pursuits and agendas and calendars and to-do lists in order to be of one heart and soul with other believers in generosity being displayed in that kind of profound unity. Either we believe that the gospel can't unite hearts and souls or we don't want to believe that the gospel can unite hearts and souls that way because I want what I want. I want what Jesus can do for me but not what he can do in and through me because I want what I want. My heart and my soul That's what matters most. You see, generosity being displayed in profound unity is a gospel issue. This notion of unity is profound, and it runs counter to our culture. When I first came to start this church a number of years ago, it's getting away from me now, it's almost seven that we moved here. It's crazy to think about that. But as I was moving here, uh, I, I received all sorts of demographic information about Champaign-Urbana. Just file after file after file. Things like age and race and socioeconomic status and, and religious preferences, education, and so on. But one of the most interesting pieces of data that I received in this packet of information was community concerns. 
Do you know what the biggest concern for our community is? Hopes and dreams. You see, people move here for a short time, or maybe they live here because they have an agenda. They have an objective. They're coming here to get an education. They're coming here to improve their way of life. They're coming here because of the promise of of more money or more success or making a name for themselves to carve out their, their little piece of the pie in this world. They're coming here with their own ambitions, their own hopes, their own dreams. They're not interested in the community of fellowship but only as much as it would serve their hopes and dreams, right? Because if you're coming here for a specific purpose and then Christ comes and he says, no, I want you to do this, but you're like, I'm doing this, and you're saying to do this, I'm not interested in that. Quite honestly, it's been frustrating as a church planner to do that, to live in this because it's it's a big deal. But when the gospel calls us to change, when it calls us to be transformed, to be united, we are either going to ignore it, to minimize it, or to dismiss it altogether. But friends, that community concern of hopes and dreams doesn't just exist beyond these walls among the unbelieving community of Champaign-Urbana. It exists right here in the community of Redeemer Church. When attitude and thought, and word, and deed, we put our hopes and our dreams before our call to follow Christ. Consider the call again. Jesus says, if anyone is to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Deny himself. Remember what Paul said. In Galatians chapter 2, I have been crucified in Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Or in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, when he says the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died was raised. Friends, there are so many other passages that we could look at on the call to discipleship and this call to profound unity in the gospel. But one that ought to be very, very familiar to us here at Redeemer is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, where Paul still serving God faithfully as a prisoner in chains for the sake of the gospel and for the unity of the church, says to the Ephesians, I, therefore a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all unity and patience, with gentleness and love, like bearing with one another love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And what he's saying to us is like, look, you've been changed. You've been transformed. You are now in Christ. And so be who you now are in Jesus. You have been united to each other by the power of the Holy Spirit that unites you together. 
in the bond of peace, which is Jesus Christ Himself. But you have to maintain it. You have to keep it. You have to fight for it. Guard it. Build it up. That's what He's telling them to do. We've been united, but we must fight for this unity. And this unity, guys, it takes more than lip service. This unity takes more than signing a church covenant. This unity is tangible. It's palpable. We see there in verse 32 where it goes on to say that these believers were of such heart and soul that no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And the root word for that word common there is the same root word for the word fellowship. And so when you think about the way that they shared their lives together, this fellowship, this unity, this partnership in the gospel, this sharing generously of what we've been given in Christ is lived out in our lives together. Now we're going to talk more about what, what this means in a little bit um, in verses 34. This is and through 37, this is not communism here because communism is forced. Christian generosity is voluntary. Otherwise, Luke, why would Luke make an example of Barnabas? Because if Barnabas was supposed to do what everybody else is supposed to do, then there's no, no, no need to bring him up. There's nothing praiseworthy about what he did. Also, how could they meet in homes according to chapter 2, verse 46, if everybody was mandated to sell their land and homes? Right? Also, in the very next section, Peter will say to Ananias in chapter 5, verse 4, While your land remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Saying, look, it, it was yours to do with whatever you please. And Ananias was judged not because he withheld, but because he lied. We'll look at that next time, Lord willing. Also, communism says... What you have is ours to do with what we please. Christian generosity says, what I have is yours, and it pleases me to give it to you. Their unity was so profound, it was so palpable that it didn't stop at words. Instead, they had everything in common. And friends, just think, about the impact that that would have on our hopes and dreams community. I mean, just think about it in your homes. I mean, could you imagine if your kids would just stop fighting, stop saying the words mine, and started saying the word ours? That rather than fighting over toys or, or whatever it is, they, they, they started sharing and, and preferring others. I got five kids. There's four cookies in the house. And one of my kids just starts going, brothers and sisters, I love you. And I prefer you. You eat the cookies. Friends, if that happened in my house, I'd start looking around to make sure Jesus hadn't come back. Right? I'd fall on my knees and start praising God. I would repent of sin and unbelief. Right? I, I, would, I would just jump around and hug and skip and cry and love. I would probably go out and buy a whole bunch of stuff and bring it back and say, here, share this. Look. And then I'd go, hey, Phyllis, look at what's happening here. 
And I'm joking around, but, but seriously, that's the kind of effect that this profound community was having on each other and the world. It was infectious. I mean, you've got thousands of people, this entire multitude of one heart and soul, so much so that they're sharing all these things in common, and people are just like, wow. That happens in my house. Imagine what would happen if it happened among the church. But friends, that can only happen when we set aside our me and mine hearts to follow the heart and soul of Christ. When Christ's ambitions, when his longings and his way of thinking and his desires and his beliefs and his plans truly become ours, that's when we will be of one heart and soul. Then and only then, But every one of us must conscientiously devote ourselves to putting him first. Now you might be thinking to yourself at this point, well, okay, that sounds really great, but how on earth do we even start to think about approaching this? Does this mean that I really, I gotta go sell my car or my house now in order to do that? No. Luke has already told us what we need to do. Back in chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. So just flip, flip back there, just one page. Chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. This is how we grow in unity. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So he's saying, look, you want to grow in unity? Devote yourself to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Our generosity will grow and will be expressed in profound unity if we would persist in, if we would be faithful to, if we would commit ourselves, if we would hold fast and persevere in the church. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayers. Things that we do regularly when we gather together. And I can assure you from your own experience, okay? I'm, I'm, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna read into your life right now. Consider this prophetic. From your own experience that you have never felt of more unity, being of one heart and soul as when you were devoting yourself to these things, and you have never felt more estranged, more cut off, more separate, more of an outcast than when you neglected or refused to do these things. I consider you to think about your life, and I think that your own experience would prove it to be true. I don't know about you, but last time I could say, man, one heart and soul with people from Redeemer Church, 
Quite honestly, I don't even know if I could say that last Sunday, but I could say it the Friday before when 40, 45 of us gathered here together to pray for spiritual awakening on our campus. And as we spent hours pouring our hearts out to God, focusing on his will, his desire, his mission for our community, I felt profound unity because we were devoting ourselves to these very things. And so friends, I'd ask you, what is keeping you from being one heart and one soul with Christ's followers? What attitudes, what thoughts, what desires or aspirations, what priorities, what practices, what actions, what hopes and dreams even hinder you from living in unity with others in such a way that it distorts and maligns this generous gospel? What feeds division or dissensions within you? What steps do you need to take in order to visibly prefer others? To pursue the heart and soul of Christ? Because that's our ultimate goal. Friends, in this generous gospel, former enemies and rebels of God have become beloved sons and daughters. We have been brought near. We have been united not just to God, but to each other, to the Holy Spirit. Christ has brought us near. Christ has made us one. Christ has joined us together. Christ has broken down every dividing wall of hostility and made peace through his cross. And he did that not just vertically, but horizontally so that we can share in lives together and proclaim the gospel with our lives. Let's live in a manner worthy of this calling by devoting ourselves to displaying profound unity as a church. Let's repent of this me and mine first attitude and devote ourselves to pursuing Christ's heart because that's what the gospel does for, in, and through us. And so, the generous gospel produces generous people that display profound unity. And second, powerful testimony. Now, so much of this passage rides upon our understanding of the church's unity that our generosity is expressed first and foremost by our unity that comes from this generous gospel. And then our unity then gives power to our testimony and it fuels our praiseworthy care. So we had to spend most of our time on that first one to establish the fact in order to see the second and third. The Christ, or, or sorry, the church's testimony without unity is powerless. An individual giving that is not motivated by unifying love is self-interested and not praiseworthy care. And so the generosity that we see in this passage begins with and is built upon unity, but that unity then gives power to our witness. Verse 33 says, And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. They were giving 
witness to the resurrection of Jesus. Now, what's strange here is that if you read through Acts, and if you know any Greek at all, you know that there's this very specific word that means to bear witness, to testify. There's a verb form, and, and Luke uses it 13 times throughout the book of Acts. And when he doesn't use that word, every other time he talks about how they were witnesses, so using a noun form. But here he does a really odd construction in using a very strange verb with the word for testimony or witness. And that word, that verb means to give away, to give out. Think about sowing. They were giving away their witness to the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. They were giving out this testimony of the powerful gospel that can transform lives. The power that raises Christ from the dead. It's very interesting that they choose to use, that Luke chooses to use that word there and only there. It's because he's trying to establish a point that our proclamation of the gospel is to be motivated by generosity. We don't often think or often view evangelism as generosity, but that's what he's doing here. That's what we're doing, or at least we should be doing. Rather than trying to argue people into a corner or to prove ourselves right or or pressuring them with tactics that induce anxiety, we are graciously and sacrificially giving out, giving away the gospel. We are sowing the word generously. We are freely giving away our witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. The generous gospel produces people who are generous with the gospel. Generous to sacrifice their lives as they go on mission. Generous to suffer at the hands of lawless men so that they would come to Christ. Generous to forego comforts and conveniences to win the hearts of others. Generous to be bold in the face of fear so that others might share in the grace that they have received. Their generosity with the gospel was powerful. And it's not just because they were filled with the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit has come upon them and they were boldly proclaiming the gospel, though that's primarily what Luke is speaking of here. It's not just because it was accompanied by signs and wonders and miracles which Christ had performed in power by the hands of the apostles, though that was coming into play here. And it was not even simply because they were willing to suffer for this generous gospel, which is itself a powerful testimony. It was all of those things, but part of what made their witness so powerful was that their witness as a body, their lives together, made the gospel visible. Their life together as a church was so radically different than that of both the religious Jews and the Roman Gentiles that people could look in and see the gospel being put on display in the way they lived, in the way they shared, in the way that they loved each other. That people could actually look in upon the church and identify clearly who was and who was not a Christian. Friends, do you know that, that to answer that question, hey, who's a Christian? Who, who, 
What's the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian? You know what God says to that? He says, look at the church. That's how we're supposed to be able to tell. That's not what's happening in our day, but that's what it's supposed to be. Our lives together so radically commending the gospel as we proclaim the gospel, the people are like, wow, clearly Jesus rose from the dead. When I see those, those people living together, when I see the fact that that guy shared with that guy, I can totally believe that Jesus rose from the dead. When I see them loving each other that way, I can believe that God created the world in, in six days. I, I, I can believe in the virgin birth. I can believe in any miracle, parting of the Red Sea, you name it, because of the way they live together. That's powerful. Our lives together as a body is meant to demonstrate that the gospel is a life-transforming message that has the power to unite people who have nothing in common but Christ, and that means everything. It's through the church, and only through the church, that we can truly embrace the mission of the gospel to make disciples of all nations. And it is through the church that we are truly able to live out and practice gospel commands. Friends, the power of the resurrection coming to bear upon our lives gives a powerful testimony to the reality and centrality of Christ's mission and Christ's resurrection, who Christ is, what he has done. It is made palpable in the way that we live our lives together. But unfortunately, the witness of our lives usually demonstrates the opposite. Disunity Apathy, discord, selfishness, division conveys to the world that Jesus is dead. It is a powerless testimony. But Luke goes on to say in verse 33, the great grace was upon them all. You see, it's grace that saves us. It's grace that gives us life. It is grace that unites us together in love. It is grace that enables us to extend grace to others. It is grace that gives power to our witness. All of the Christian life is of grace. And as we respond in generosity, or to this grace in generosity, as we respond in unity and love and proclamation, we are transformed not just as individuals, but as a church We bear witness to the gospel in power, not just in words, but in our lives. And the reward of that grace is more grace. That great grace was upon them all. And this is how we can be sure that Luke is telling us the truth. Is this church in Jerusalem living this way? Is no human invention. This was all of grace. Grace that was freely offered and generously provided to each and every one of us in the gospel. And so friends, what do we do with this? I think we ought to pray that great grace would be upon us all. That this generous gospel will produce generosity in our hearts that is displayed in profound unity among us and in a powerful testimony as we both proclaim and we adorn together in our lives the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And third, that our gospel generosity would be displayed in our praiseworthy care of each other. The generous gospel produces generous people who display that generosity in profound unity, in powerful testimony, and third, in praiseworthy care. Verse 34 says that there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Here we see their generosity being displayed in praiseworthy care as they sought to meet every need. Friends, in the gospel, this is why it matters, in the gospel, God has lavishly provided for our every true need. You understand that you have life and breath and being. Everything that you have is a gift from the Lord. The fact that you are now in Christ is all because God has provided for your true spiritual needs. Everything that you've been given, your relationships, your jobs, your cars, your homes, all of it is from the Lord. It's a gift from Him. He has provided for your every need. In Christ, we have been given a glorious inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, that is kept in heaven for us who are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. And because Christ has met our every need, those who are in Christ that have more than enough should seek to provide for those who do not have enough. That's the principle at work here. They want to care for each other's needs. And not just financial needs either, but relational needs, physical needs, emotional needs, spiritual needs. Just want to be there for them. I mean, your family disowned you because of your faith in Christ. You've got a new family here in this church. We love you. You are our brother. You are our sister. Come and be a part of this family. You've been broken, wounded. You're a weary soul. Come, let us help. You find rest in him. You're just feeling down and out, beat up by life. You know, you've got a disability and you can't do what you need to do. Hey, we're happy to serve you in whatever way we can. When when you think of generosity, don't think of just sharing financial wealth, but from the wealth of what you've been given in Christ. Knowledge, understanding, love, compassion, relationships, time, energy, skills, talents, you name it. All of it is a gift from the Lord. It's been graciously given to you, and so you can give it to others. This is holistic care for those who are in need. And again, this is not communism. This is voluntary, cheerful giving to support those who are in need. First to the church, because we see that there was not any needy person among them. Who's the them? It's the church. And those humble gifts were laid at the apostles' feet, the leaders of the church, to be distributed to each believer as any as had need. And so what we see happening here is actually a fulfillment of Deuteronomy 15, verses 4 through 11. That among this new covenant people, there would be no needy among any of them. The call that God had originally gave to the Israelites at the edge of the promised land that they failed to keep will now be fulfilled by those who are in Christ, the true Israel. Those who have received the generous gospel actively seek to care generously for those who are in need. And so just like unity, just like our testimony, our care for each other is a gospel issue. 
Now at this point, people begin to, to raise questions. Does this mean that we're to care for everybody outside the church? Well, we see from this passage a priority is given to the household of faith. We care for the needs among us first, and then as the Lord provides, as the Lord gives opportunities, we seek to care for others. Or as Paul said in in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to the household of faith. And so as the Lord blesses, as the Lord provides, as the Lord brings people into our lives who have needs, we seek to meet them among this body first, but also others. But to see somebody in need in this church and to be unwilling to meet that need, that is a gospel issue. You have to kind of question, man, are you, are you even a Christian? The next question is usually something along the lines of, well, what about those who are truly needy throughout the world? I mean, there's so many needs. You just get online, you kind of look, people are starving, they don't have clean water. It's a huge issue, and it is. Well, in Acts 11, we see the church in Antioch is sending relief to the churches in Judea to help during a time of famine. And so keep this in mind, because even this thing that we see happening right here in Acts chapter 4, It's not going to happen by the time you get to Acts chapter 11, right? Because a famine hit, all right? In fact, Jesus said that we will always have the poor with us. We will always be able to do good to them until he returns again. So it's not as though our goal or the gospel's goal is to vanquish poverty. It's not going to happen. And yet that didn't stop Paul Because in Paul's letters, he organizes cooperative giving among the churches for the sake of the mission of the gospel and also to care for those who are in need, to care for the poor. But he never demanded it. He never said, this is what the gospel is. But instead, he asked for prayerful, sacrificial, voluntary, cheerful giving. Said the word cheerful, so then the next question comes, well, hey, I don't feel cheerful about giving. That means I'm exempt until I feel cheerful about it, right? Well, in this context right here, because there's such an abundance, need is actually comparatively rare. I mean, it's nothing like what we're dealing with here in Acts chapter 4 where you basically had 7% of, of the people were landowners and were wealthy and everybody else was poor, right? This, we're in a different context. I would say, no, you need to give until you feel cheerful about it. Just like ripping out that check. Wow, this one actually didn't hurt as much as the last few. So I'm actually starting to feel cheerful about this thing. I'm kidding, but, but nevertheless, I mean, we don't wait until we feel a certain way to do what we know God has called us to do. We do what God has called us to do as we pray that our hearts would align with what he asks us. Now, we have to be careful that, that as we think about those needy, whether they be near to us or across the world, that we don't do things that foster dependency or entitlement. Right? Our compassion towards our brothers and sisters throughout the world, though, it should be tangible. right? Because you can't give cheerfully in your heart and not give cheerfully from your wallet. right? Maybe a better way to think about giving is that there's a moral proximity with regards to giving. That the closer they are geographically, And the closer they are relationally, the more obligated we are to care for those needs. 
right? And so like your family. I mean, Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, if you don't provide for your own, especially those of your own household, you've denied the faith and are worse than an unbeliever. Gospel issue, right? So then you've got the, the church family after that, caring for the household of faith, the needs, making sure that there are no needs among us. And then it branches out further. You think about our neighbors, those who we have relationships with, who are near to us, and they have needs, we seek to meet those. Whereas the Lord brings people into our lives where relationships are established. Boy, you know, it, it can be sort of an in-passing, a providential thing where the Lord gives you an opportunity to give and seek to meet those needs. But what really matters is relationship. Do you have a relationship with them? Then we think about our Christian brothers throughout the world, and on and on it kind of goes. But the closer we are, the more, and the more we have relationships with them, the more obligated we are to care for them. And so then the question becomes, well, what about those who take advantage of generosity, right? Well, the early church had to deal with that one too. They dealt with every single one of these questions. And so in Acts chapter 6, the Jewish widows were being favored in the distribution. The Hellenist widows were being neglected. So they had to answer that. Their solution, deacons. Let's organize this to make sure that all needs are being cared for. 1 Timothy 5, Paul is giving Timothy advice on how to enroll widows in the distribution. Make sure that she's faithful. Make sure she's of a certain age. Make sure she's not a busybody. If she's young, have her go ahead and marry somebody else so she's not double dipping. 1 Thessalonians, some people quit their jobs because they thought that Jesus was going to come back at any moment. And so, though they were able-bodied, they took advantage of the generosity of their fellow Christians. And so Paul says, okay, they want to do that. Don't let them eat. And then you get to 2 Thessalonians. He said, look, if they're persisting in these things, this is now a gospel issue, and you discipline them because they are abusing Christian generosity. And so the early church dealt with all of the questions that we have about this as well. But the general rule and the main idea that is being lived out in this passage is that those who have more than enough ought to share with those who do not have enough. That's the way you need to think about it. And quite frankly, there should be no need among this body for anyone to have a need. And by doing so, there's not going to be a needy person among us. Now, this passage ends with an example of praiseworthy care. Verse 36, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, unlike Ananias and Sapphira that we're going to look at next week, Barnabas is an example of praiseworthy care. As a Levite landowner in Cyprus, he would have been among the elite upper class. I mean, keep in mind, this dude lived on an island, right? He probably kind of made this whole deal by, by like chartering his own sort of jet ship to, to make it back to his island and rode on his golden-plated chariot. You know, as he kind of garnered this whole deal about the sale of a field. It's probably Turner Field, you know, turned around and sold it to Georgia State. I don't know. But it says that he sold a field. Not that he sold fields and houses and everything, but it says he sold a field as an expression of his care for the church. 
And in submission to the apostles, we see that he laid that gift at their feet. And as, out of an earnest desire to obey Christ, he brought the money, laid it at the apostles' feet to generously provide for the needs of the congregation. So Barnabas is an example of Christian generosity. But not just because he sold a piece of land and he gave the proceeds to be distributed among those in need. He was also an example of praiseworthy care because of his... He was one who embraced the generous mission of the gospel. I mean, if you keep reading through the book of Acts, he would serve the churches in Jerusalem and then later in Antioch faithfully until he, alongside Paul, would be sent out as the first missionaries of the gospel to the Gentiles, to the very uttermost regions of the earth. And so this man's praiseworthy care compelled him toward mission, to care for the Gentiles, to care for enemies of God, outsiders whom he had never met. And Barnabas was an example of praiseworthy care because he was an encourager as well. I mean, this guy loves and comes alongside everybody. If you keep reading through the book of Acts, the church in Jerusalem is distrustful about this Gentile church that arose in Antioch. And Barnabas said, hey, I'll go and shepherd them. The apostles are, are very skeptical of the former terrorist turned Christian evangelist, Paul. But Barnabas said, I'll go with him. When John Mark abandoned Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey, they get ready to head out on their second. And Barnabas says, I know he did wrong, but let's bring him back. Let's take him with us. This guy was the embodiment of encouragement. And so much so that the apostles named this dude Joseph Barnabas. The apostles said, this guy so embodies encouragement that we're going to start calling him son of encouragement. What a blessing he must have been to them. What an encouragement. He was generous, praiseworthy, as he cared intentionally and soul-edifying encouragement in the gospel for the good of the body. Friends, we care for each other because God cares for us. We seek to meet one another's needs because he has met our every true need in Christ. We love each other because he first loved us. And by all this, people will know that we are Jesus' disciples if we have love for one another. We encourage one another in the truth because God has encouraged our hearts in the truth. See, our generous testimony, whether it's displayed in this profound unity, this powerful testimony, or this praiseworthy care, makes generous gospel visible. God has blessed us with an abundance of riches in Christ so that we can bless those out of the overflow of those riches. So friends, how is the Lord calling you to be generous? How is he calling you to show 
similar unity, testimony, care. He is because the generous gospel produces generous people. So let's pray together. Father, I pray that we would be overwhelmed by your kindness towards us in Christ. That out of the overflow of the grace that you have given us, we would extend grace in word and thought and deed towards others. God, I pray that that we would see how tangible the Christian life is meant to be. Not just so that we just run and kind of do those things hoping that we can receive grace from you, but that, that everything that we do is motivated by the grace that we have already received, are receiving, and will receive in Christ. That you have been so generous to us that we want to be generous to others with our lives, with our hearts, with our souls, with our attitudes and ambitions, with the resources that you've given us so that as a church we may display profound unity and our testimony to the gospel would come in power. The people would look upon us and say, man, the gospel has to be true. God, we know that we love ourselves more than others and we pray that we would love Christ more than ourselves because if we love Christ more than ourselves, we will love others. And we thank you that his love for us is not bound by our own perfect obedience, but his love overcomes our disobedience so that we are transformed to display who he is. May we truly bear his image as we are conformed to it because you have created us in his likeness and true righteousness and holiness. And so, Lord, out of your generosity, make us generous. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.